This is Chuck Morse Speaks, your host, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, as I emanate from the city of Boston, the city on the hill, the hub of the universe, the Athens of America. You're welcome to join the program, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. In hour number two today, I've got Ted Shobat coming on. He's the son of former Palestinian Arab terrorist, member of Hamas. He's an expert on uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and what's going on in Egypt and the Middle East in general, the Gaza situation and whatnot. So, but right now, as is our custom here, on Tuesday, we're talking religion mm-hmm. and its intersection with politics. And, of course, my guest and regular co-host on Tuesday is um, Deacon Michael mm-hmm. Wanowitz from Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church. Mike, how are you? I am well, thank you, Chuck. And a little bit of snow in the offing here in the Boston area, but, uh, well, it's Thanksgiving is over, and here's winter. That's right. Speaking of Thanksgiving, um, Mike, um, there's been a lot of um, reaction, I think, from the left in terms of annoyance at some conservatives who have pointed out that President Obama, in his annual resolution for Thanksgiving, which is something that apparently is a custom for presidents going back to Washington, Correct. that he didn't mention God. Hmm. I did, you know, unfortunately, for some reason, I didn't happen to see the, the text or listen to his proclamation, but uh, you're quite right uh, in, in referring to the fact that presidents have a tradition beginning with George Washington, uh, very much in Abraham Lincoln's proclamation of Thanksgiving, which is used so so very often in many interfaith services, uh, where Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, spoke of the beneficent Creator. I mean, and then going on and on. So this is a highly uh, revered, if you will, I'll use that word, tradition. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I have to go look up and see what he actually said. Well, you know, the thing that that bothers me about it is that the left is so outraged that conservatives would point this out as if there's something wrong with that, when the fact is that putting aside the religious aspect of it, Thanksgiving, the history of Thanksgiving, going right back to the pilgrims themselves, and including three major American presidents who proclaimed the holiday as executive order, those being George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and FDR, that that the religion that the whole idea of Thanksgiving is to thank God. That's what it's about. That's what we're thinking. Right. We thank God for a, a year of another year of uh, relative prosperity and peace and blessings of being a nation on this great continent, and and that we're taking stock and reflecting on the year and looking forward. It's kind of like, I mean, to take God out of Thanksgiving is like taking labor out of out of Labor Day. <clears throat> Right, yeah, right. I mean, that's what the holiday is. It's like it's taking about, independence yeah. out of the 4th of July. So, I mean, to my way of thinking, that's that's the whole raise on debt 
of the Thanksgiving festival. It's it's the the, the actual name of it is thank, Thanksgiving to God. Um, you know, so I mean, this is um, it's just it's just very interesting that 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 this would be that our culture has reached the point where people are annoyed that um, that someone would bring this up, and that also that we would find that. Um, you know, there's something acceptable not only about the president not mentioning God and, and just ignoring that, but that we would be attacked for mentioning that he didn't mention it. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and yet so many times, you know, people criticize people for mentioning things, but now <clears throat> you have a situation when, I don't know, it just, that seems a little bit um, off the rails, so to speak. Right, and I know that, like, in my own family, I went to my wife's family this year in New York, and her family and their friends, these are very ultra, ultra left-wing people, and they're very mm-hmm. secular. They, they, they don't, they despise religion. And for whatever reason, we actually ended up going around the table with each person saying what they were thankful for. And, you know, people had funny comments to make, and, gee, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. And when it was my turn, I said, "I want to thank God." Ah, right. And uh, you, you would, you would have had to have passed out smelling salts. Ah, right. Who <clears throat> were ready yeah. to faint? I mean, and it changed the whole complexion of. Nobody said anything about it, uh, right. but it changed the whole. And I mentioned a few things. I, I thank God for my family, and I, 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 I pray that everyone, all my friends and relatives, have a good year. And and I thank God for this country. And that's all I said. Nothing right. more. Right. But um, <clears throat> you could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. So, I mean, the whole idea of mentioning God and mentioning the creator of the universe is becoming something that um, I think that the secular establishment has been pretty successful in terms of not only drumming it out of public life to a very high degree, maybe to a degree that's more that's bigger than we even are not, we even realize. But to almost demonize those who who do believe in God and who right. and they say that we're, <clears throat> we're 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 not scientific or we're superstitious <clears throat> or whatnot. Well, it's even got to the point where, again, the idea of having a card or making a statement to someone you meet during this time of the year, and say, "Oh, have a good holiday," and some people say, "Well, which one are you referring to?" I mean, or what? Hol- I mean. <laughs> You have to stand back and say, I'm not quite sure in my mind what you're really referring to. Happy holiday. Well, what's wrong with happy Thanksgiving or happy Hanukkah or happy, you know. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. And, and I think that even the word holiday is means holy day. Correct. Right. You know, this is a religious, con- it has a religious connotation to it. And, of course, we can all expect the usual war on Christmas. That's, that's, the annual, that's become yeah. an annual event. Right. Um, you know, I had, uh, in fact, I was listening to a talk show, I remember last year, where this man called in and said, you know, I was at, at, at church, I'm Catholic, and I was at church, and after the Mass, we had like a, a social event in the in the auditorium, and they, there was a little party for Christmas, and I turned to a young woman and I said, Merry Christmas, and she said, Happy Holidays. Oh, my God. And, I'm, yeah. and she's like, you know, this is a church. Merry right, Christmas. Right. <laughs> what do you mean? <clears throat> right. So it, it, yeah. it's kind of a, a, a this kind of overall conditioning, yeah. I think, that's that's going on yeah. with that. And um, by the way, I, I'm reading a book about um, religion and science, Magician's Twin. It's about 
the work of uh, British uh, writer and novelist C.S. Lewis, oh, yeah. who uh, became Christian toward the end of his life and who, right. who who's, uh, wrote some great novels that are very popular in, in um, the Narnia series. And he also was a professor at Oxford. And um, he points out that, um, just as a quick sidebar, that, that the business of the Pope having arrested and imprisoned Galileo. Right. That, that this, and he's a medievalist. I mean, he's an expert on medieval <laughs> times. Right. That, that this is completely misunderstood and has been completely misrepresented because the church did not arrest Galileo because he was advocating and advancing the, uh, the astronomy of Copernicus. Correct. In fact, the church supported Copernicus. <clears throat> they published Copernicus. Right. Right. It had right. nothing to do. It was not anti-science at all. He said that the the crime of or the sin, if you will, of Galileo was that Galileo took the theories of astronomy that were presented by Copernicus, and he insisted that these were absolute fact, that right. this was closed. Right. There was no more discussion about it. And that's what the church objected to, which actually their objection was more based upon the premise that Galileo was engaging in bad science mm. because you don't it, you know the scientific methodology is not to completely close scientific inquiry it's to you know scientific <clears throat> inquiry is an ongoing <throat> thing I mean we, we, we learn from from uh, <clears throat> research and then you advance it and sometimes <clears throat> things get changed and, and tossed out we all know for example that much of Sigmund Freud's the theories of psychology have been rejected even by psychology. Mm. It's, you know, we're not even talking about uh, people like you know me who who totally reject Freud. But you know, in other words, that that good science is 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 not saying this is fact. That in fact gets mm. this book says that that gets into almost what magic is about. I mean, it gets right. into almost sorcery to insist that a science is fact. I mean, would we insist today that eugenics is fact? I mean, mm. these things were accepted as science at one time or another. Alchemy, yep. I mean, this is an accepted science. <clears throat> right. So um, anyway, I just, I just thought that was, that was quite an insight yeah. that, that, um, because I think that the church has been slammed mm. for that. And there's even been a play recently which shows the church is being really backward and they insist sure. like flat earthers, you know, that they insist that the world is round. <clears throat> Right. And that kind of stuff. And that that's just untrue. There yes. is no contradiction between faith and science. It's two separate areas of endeavor and that um in a sense to um to completely deny the possibility of a creator of the universe and miracles and and whatnot, it it kind of negates science in a way. I mean it sort of it, it reduces science to a materialistic theory. And um, you know, in the utter sense, and that materialism itself mm. is, I think, a discredited science. Uh, right. So anyway, those are mm. some of my thoughts on that. It's a very interesting book. I'm going to be having one of the authors. It's a series of essays on the show on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. That being the magician's twin, uh -huh. and it's a thinkings of C.S. Lewis. Great. Um, we're going to take a brief break. My guest is Michael Wanowitz, Our Lady of Sorrows, Roman Catholic Church. And you're welcome, of course, to join us at 347-327-9849. You can email the program at number 4 at gmail.com. I'll read your email over the air and comment on it. Please stay tuned.
347-327-9849. Chuck Morse speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse, along with Dr. Along with uh, Deacon Michael Wanowitz. I almost said uh, Patrick O'Heffernan there. Oh, my. My former co-host, who, by the way, comes on after this program or after the second hour, which is from 1 to 2 p.m. Um, and, um, Mike, I don't know if you caught this story, but um, recently uh, Senator Marco Rubio of um, Florida was um, out in uh, Denver and there's rumors that he is starting to set up himself as a presidential contender four years from now, which I think is probably true. <clears throat> Right. Um, but he was asked the question. He was asked a question by a reporter about whether he thinks that the Earth is, you know, millions of years old, or does he believe in a young Earth? And um, he didn't answer the question directly. He basically said, and I think quite accurately, he said, "Those are questions for scientists." You know, I'm a politician. You know, I, and um, you know, I, I right. just don't really right. know, and I don't. He kind yeah. of punted it. Sure. Um, it was pointed out that um, Barack Obama, when he was running for president in 2008, was asked the same question, and his answer was pretty much the same. Right. He said, "I really don't want you know know about that. I tell my <clears> children <throat> that the Bible is true, but um, I don't know." But everybody kind of ignored that from Obama because sure. he's not seen as religious. Mm. Whereas Rubio is being racked over the coals by yeah, right. uh, by, by uh, liberal commentators, you know, for believing in you know n being anti-science and, and this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I mean, I just I think that this kind of litmus test, besides the fact that they're engaging in I think anti-science, since nobody, since any any reasonable scientist worth their salt will admit that nobody really knows how old the earth is, that there are theories, nothing is proven. Right. Um, and, and by the way, the same goes for theology in that the Torah, which of course has the book of Genesis, mm -hmm. it deliberately leaves certain aspects of the creation of the earth and of the creation of man somewhat uh, elliptical, somewhat indirect, Sure. because the rabbis tell us, the Talmudic rabbis mm -hmm. anyway, that the reason for that is that ultimately mm -hmm. there is an aspect to creation that's a mystery. Well, that's you know? correct. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, I yeah. think that the church also would concur with that, that, that these things are not spelled out exactly, that it is not known either from a religious standpoint or a scientific standpoint. So given that fact, it kind of leaves me to think that the motivation mm -hmm. behind this kind of an attack on Marco Rubio is an attack on his faith and on faith in general, that somehow because he does not accept a very orthodox view of the creation of the earth, which, again, is not proven, these are theories, and therefore is not good science, but because he won't accept that, somehow he is not qualified to hold <clears throat> right. us. Yeah, it's a, kind of a pseudo-strawman argument, if you will, indicating, as you said, that when people look at Marco Rubio, or perhaps even going back a few years with Senator Lieberman uh, from New Jersey, an observant Jew, uh, yep. people Connecticut, make... Actually. Pardon me? Connecticut. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I got that. Sorry about that. Anyway, uh, people make an, uh, an, an assumption that because 
you may be an observant Catholic, an observant Jew, uh, a faithful Muslim, etc., that your religious background makes you suspect, as you say, in terms of understanding particular scientific facts which non-believers believe, if you will, uh, takes you in the right direction. Uh, that's a very interesting kind of uh, what I call a straw man argument, putting something up and saying, given this, then you must be in the wrong side of the equation. Uh, right, that's right. It's sort of a, it's, it's a loaded question, and, uh, and certainly in a case of like Joe Lieberman, he would not have been asked that question because even if he is an observant Jew, which he is according to his own definitions, nevertheless, because he's a liberal Democrat, mm-hmm. He doesn't get asked that question. And the right. same thing could be said about a Catholic politician like, um, you know, um, you, you Joe, know Biden. Joe, uh, yeah. Joe Biden. Exactly. Nobody would ask Joe Biden if he thinks that, the, you know, how old the earth is. <laughs> it right. just wouldn't happen right. because he, and even if he answered the question, it wouldn't matter. Like Barack Obama answered it because everyone knows that these guys are liberals, so therefore it's right. okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I think you're you're right in that this is an attack on people of faith um, as being you know superstitious and of being you know in, you know adhering to you know an you know old discredited um, theological ideas and yet you know they wanted to not, they they hold to materialism and you know my my attitude on that is that um, putting aside the specific theological questions. I think that it's it should be obvious, and I think it's becoming more obvious scientifically that there is something more to life than just materialism. You know that we're not just an inanimate bag of bones; that there is something miraculous to existence. You know, when you open your eyes in the morning and you um, spring out of bed, there is something miraculous about that. It's not just that we're animals. You know, what about, I mean, how do you explain, for example, the phenomena of human reason, the ability of human beings? I mean, is that part of the naturalist world? You know, don't don't human beings have the ability to, uh, you know, create major changes on this world because of their ability to do something more than just simply evolve like animals? I mean, there's... You know the inventions that we've engaged in—the the art, the science, the the music. You know these things are incredible things. I mean, it's obvious that there's something a greater cause to all of that than just inanimate, you know, naturalism and tied to nature. Right. I mean, I, 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 even like recently, a very trendy. In fact, because I'm reading this book about C.S. Lewis. He responded in his lifetime to current science, and he was very interested in science. And he pointed out that in his day, and this was in the 1950s, I think he passed away in 1962, around that time. In his day, it was very popular in science to look at the Big Bang Theory as an explanation for the creation of the universe. And um, and his point on that, he said, first of all, religious people should not jump in and respond every time there's a scientific theory because oftentimes these theories go away, you know, as science <clears throat> develops. Right. But he would he nevertheless delved in and responded by pointing that the whole idea of a Big Bang actually is much more consonant with people of faith than it is with uh, materialism because 
the materialist idea is just that matter exists and it just continues to flow on ad infinitum, whereas a Big Bang means that there was some sort of an event, something happened to create matter. It was like a moment <clears throat> right. when there was, a, 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 you know, and, and whether you think that it was miraculous or not, one could argue that it was and that um, it, it, it kind of coincides with the whole idea of creation, that, uh, you know, God created the universe in one day. There was a big bang. Right. Well, I think people uh, oftentimes like to be able to pinpoint <clears throat> excuse me, the origin of things, you know, the origin of the species and so forth. And, you know, when you cannot predict, not predict is the wrong word, I'm sorry, when you cannot define a chronological timeline, uh, as we read in the Bible, it says, in the beginning, mm -hmm. but the beginning has no def definition in terms of believers. It says that in the beginning, God, etc., and it goes on to describe precisely what happened. But again, right. the key phrase is, in the beginning. And so when you ask someone like Marco Rubio, uh, tell me how many years ago that was, there's no way we can clearly uh, make a statement that has any credibility to it, because the best we know and best we can believe in is that it was the beginning. Uh, That's right, whenever it was. <laughs> It's it's very it's not a specific uh, event that's that's cast in time. We just know that there was a beginning. I mean, this is exactly what the rabbis were talking about when they said that uh, that ultimately there's a major aspect to this that's mis that's mysterious. That the Torah is revealed truth according to rabbinic understanding, but it's not the whole truth. Right. Now the whole truth is God, is in God. I mean, we don't know the whole truth. That's, in a sense, the very sin of the Garden of Eden, that you can know, you can be as gods. Right, right. to know the difference between good and evil. That's right. Yeah. And, and, that in, and that Lewis goes on to say that he doesn't know if, this, if, if it's literal, as it is said in the Bible, you know, which creates a visual image of Eve communicating with the serpent and the, right. whether or not somebody actually ate a piece of fruit and, and all of that. But he says that it is quite scientific and quite reasonable to assume that somewhere along the line in man's experience he heard a whisper somewhere mm. that said you can be as god right. you can be like good and evil and um, Whitaker Chambers who was uh, wrote the book Witness he, I, I one of my favorite books mm. especially the very first chapter the letter to his children Whitaker Chambers was a American communist who went underground in the 1930s, and he handled various communist spies or, so, or, so, or pro-Soviet people inside the, um, the Roosevelt administration. And then he, t he had second thoughts, uh, left communism, and then he turned them in after the Hitler-Stalin pact because he became concerned with the future of the country. And then right. eventually that led to testimony against Alger Hiss. I mean, it was a very famous mm -hmm. trial. Right. He, he points out in his first chapter in his book, which I really think should be required reading for all students. It's, it's a great American classic. It should be right up there on the top of the shelf. It's, it's almost suppressed today, but it's a very important book. He points out that uh, he talks about how he became a believer, and that's interesting in and of itself. But he also says that um, he refers to communism as the second oldest religion. And 
that he defines communism as having been hatched in the Garden of Eden, at least, at least um, metaphorically speaking, when, however that happened, in that it was this idea that man could be as God. In other words, that we could be equal to God. We can replace God, in a sense, as the authority on, on earth, and that we can know good and evil like God knows it. And that, uh, you know, this is the temptation of communism. And he points out that it's been with us in every generation. It's, it's with us today. This idea that people can take on these kinds of powers to know what is best for the universe, to know what's best for the future, to control the destiny of the world, and to, you know, create a new kind of a man, to abolish, um, you know, things that are the darker side of the human experience, things like poverty and hunger. Hmm. Now, of course, we know that as religious people, we are, we are vulnerable to this message, because we also want to change the world. That's what both Christianity and Judaism teach. In Judaism, they call that tikkun olam. Um, it's, it's a very important prospect. But, but we're not trying to perfect the world. Right. We're trying to change the world by doing good deeds right. and by, by teaching that which we think is true and by being good to people and by trying to help people. And when we live a good life like that and when we contribute you know, charitably, not just in terms of money, but in terms of our actions and, and our interactions, then we do improve the world, you know, as people, and that does have a rippling effect. We, we don't believe that you can have man take over a society and forcibly change the world by changing human nature and by eliminating the negative side of human nature because we know that that doesn't work. It runs against human nature. We all have a dark side. We're all capable of sin. Right. So, anyway, maybe I'm, I'm waxing philosophic today. I'm not sure why. but um, Well, it's that time of the year. It is. Yeah. It definitely is. And, um, you know, we can take stock of, um, of our own lives and reflect on everything that's happened. Um, I'm in the middle of writing yet another book. I've got all these unpublished books on my, on my <clears throat> desk. You know, I actually over Thanksgiving, I, I, I wanted, we visited in New York City with some of my wife's cousins, who are they're fairly sophisticated people. They're very liberal people. They're very, they're very high in the in the publishing mm. business. And um, one and and this man said to me that um, about a year ago, I had sent one of my manuscripts to one of Barbara's relatives, and he happened to read it. Right. And he said, "Look, mm. I dis I disagree with everything you said, and I'm angry at." <laughs> Yeah. But you're, you're, you've you've got an important book, oh, and you're okay. a serious writer. He said, and you've mm-hmm. got you've got some great insights here. The book is well written, and you should be published. Why aren't you published? Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So that kind of inspired me. It was it was unusual to have somebody in my family say anything nice to me, okay. but um, <laughs> it, it sort of inspired me mm. to try to get my books in front of people because I hope they can get published. I've got sure. something like six manuscripts at this point. Just sitting on my desktop, waiting to be published. I keep writing these books, uh-huh. and they're big books. And I and I when I throw myself into one of these things, I really, yeah. I really, you know, I become like uh, driven until it's done. Right. So right now, I'm writing a book about what I think happened in this election. Why oh, I think right. um, why the Republicans lost, <clears throat> and and what <clears throat> the um, the Republicans can do moving forward to sort of 
retain and, and advance their relevance in, in American politics. So it's made, one of the chapters I'm writing is this very issue of, um, of the attack on faith and how that can be presented because we've lost so much ground. People have become so conditioned to view faith as being somehow something negative, and that includes people who are affiliated with what we might call rather mainline liberal churches and synagogues, uh, that, that they've come to view religious people as, as somehow mentally ill is really what it comes down to. Right. And what we can do about that, how we can reintroduce the basic theories and, and, and theorems of faith into life in a way that sort of co-ops the left by contrasting it with uh, exactly what it is that the left believes in. Um, so these are things that I'm thinking about right now, and uh, as I develop my, my various theories in this book, I also get into issues, hardcore issues, like abortion and, uh, and gay marriage and everything else, and I take a look at some ways in which the Republicans moving forward can reexamine and maybe recraft some of their positions in those issues right. while at the same time maintaining their values and not by any means endorsing something that, that's opposite their values because those are issues. You know, I think that in retrospect, Patrick was correct when he pointed out that the Republicans are viewed, I mean, this is not, they are, he's not right in the real sense, but in the theoretical sense, they became viewed as being involved mm. in a war against women, mm. and that hurt them. That cost them votes. And how can they recast that to address the concerns of women, and some of them are real, while at the same time maintaining their moral position on such matters <clears> as <throat> reducing the numbers of abortions in this country? How can they take a position on gay marriage that, in a sense, recognizes people's relationships without endorsing gay marriage and actually you know, letting it work its own course? So I'm coming up with some very, I think, pretty, pretty out-of-the-box <clears throat> interesting proposals, probably the kinds of things that are going to annoy everybody. You know what I mean? Right, right. Anyway, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Uh, blog talk radio segment Michael Wanowitz is my guest and of course you're welcome to join the program 347-327-9849 please stay tuned Ted Shobat will be up with me in hour number two. He's the uh, the son of a former Palestinian Arab terrorist, member of Hamas, 
Uh, we'll be talking about the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, about the Gaza conflict, about other matters with regard to the Middle East. Um, right now, Michael Wanowitz, of course, is with me, and we're talking about faith and its intersection with politics. Mike, yesterday, I don't know if you look at the Drudge Report, but oh, um, yes. yeah. it was a, um, a video that showed Jamie Foxx, the comedian, addressing okay. a television show, I think it's a black entertainment TV, in which he referred to Barack Obama as our Lord and Savior. Did you see that? I didn't see it. <clears throat> Excuse me. I did see a reference a couple of different times last night getting back uh, about the incident. And uh, was that where there was a picture of maybe uh, of Obama looking like a crucified Christ? Well, now that's what's up there today. Okay, this right. Is, this is another but story. But there's no, there's no connection to Jamie Foxx? No, this is, I'm just looking at the Drudge Report today. There's a painting yeah. that depicts Obama as crucified Christ. Yeah. It shows Obama with his arms out as if he's stretched onto a cross, right. standing in front of the seal of the President of the United States. It says here, a painting that features President Obama posed as Jesus Christ, crucified, is on display at a community college gallery in Boston. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Which, <laughs> I wonder yeah. which college. Yeah. The painting by Michael, D D Michael D'Antonio is part of a larger exhibit called Artists on the Stump, The Road to the White House 2012, it's on display at the Bunker Hill Community College Art oh, wow. Gallery uh, until December 15. I wonder if I can interview the uh, the artist. <clears throat> yeah, right. Um, it says the painting is called Truth and shows the president with his arms outstretched, the crown of thorns rests on his head. It was originally supposed to debut nearly four years ago at the New York City Union Square, but that event was canceled due to public outrage. Well, I mean, this is the uh, second time in two days that Barack Obama is being compared to Jesus. That's uh, <clears throat> pretty um, wild, in my, <laughs> first of all. You know, for, for a lot of reasons that we talked about the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, uh, where people, you know, look at the, in the issues of life and say that when man tries to become God himself or herself, uh, then we have a problem. And yeah. when people interject on the outside and look at someone on on the periphery like a national leader and put him or her on a pedestal, if you will, or compared to a divinity, uh, you have to shake your head and wonder what is going on. You know, it's it's really troubling. I mean, this is a part of the whole Barack Obama phenomena mm -hmm. in this country, this cult worship, this idea that, you know, Barack Obama is almost – you know, it's almost a fallback to you know to idol worship. It's um, you know this idea that we're going to worship the deities on earth, and um, you know it's something that has always run against the American grain. We never had this with our leaders. You know, George Washington is probably the most revered American president, and rightfully, but Washington was a modest man. You know, I mean he. Um, he always was very careful in terms of how he presented himself in public, and he was very dignified, and he set the tone for every American president since, how he rode a horse. I mean, he was very careful with how he looked, but at the same time, he never aspired to this sort of thing. He never had a cult following. He was attacked in the press in his own day, and in fact, in the first year of the Washington administration, 
there was a lot of talk about what to call him. You know, this is a big topic of discussion in Washington. Your Excellency, Your Highness, whatnot. And he rejected all of that quite clearly and said, you know, just Mr. President was what was decided. And uh, just very modest man. I mean, this is a, you know, the president is supposed to be just, you know, your your neighbor who uh, is doing public service. And that's the very word we've used, public service. They're there to serve. You know, we're not there to serve them. They are there simply usually a, a, a businessman or a farmer or somebody who works for a living, kind of a guy like Mitt Romney, actually, who uh, then offers their services and uh, is elected, serves a term, and then goes back to the farm. That's the view that Thomas <clears throat> Jefferson had also. I mean, this, right. was, this was, has been the model for American leaders. We've never, ever held our presidents up as cult figures. I know that maybe the closest thing we've had besides, you know, Washington, and again, Washington never had that, maybe was President John F. Kennedy, but that was only after he was assassinated. You know, it was um, so... So we now have a situation where, and I've made this argument, and I've had very vigorous, you know, discussions about this with people on the left, um, that that the whole idea of cult worship is a basic component of the left. They they have to and often have cult leaders. If you take a look at the leaders of their nations, they're always cult figures. You know, whether it be Lenin or Stalin or, or Mao Zedong. You know, referred to as the little flower, hero of the masses. You know, these people, in a sense, it's a resurrection of of the old Oriental idea of um, of the divine king and the absolute monarch. You know, the um, you know who has um, almost divine powers, very much like the Roman emperor, who was also worshipped as a god. You know, or the or the pharaoh. You know, who had God powers and who created idols that the public could worship, and that uh, obviously the mouthpiece of which was the Pharaoh himself and his government, and that these 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 deities on earth would, would create would have such awesome power that they would scare the hell out of the entire population right. by doing things like. You know, in the case of the Mayans, they'd throw a virgin into a volcano once a year. Yeah. Or, you know, the the, uh, the Canaanites, and they're throwing infants into the belly <coughs> of Moloch and, and, and worship of Baal. Yeah. I mean, these things were meant to scare the population, in my opinion. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and people would look at that and say, you know, this is total power, and I better be careful because I could be next. And, and it's something that, you know, it's always been rejected by Americans. And um, you know maybe this is you know this is a cultural phenomenon, but it, it it's the one thing about Obama that bothers me more than anything that this this idea that um, people are are viewing him like this and that uh, you know he's got he had mobs of people swooning and, and this sort of thing like he was Elvis Presley you know it's one thing to admire a rock star which is obnoxious in and of itself but that's not a as somebody that's going to be making decisions about whether we go to war. Mm. You know, would they want Elvis Presley deciding the budget? <laughs> you know, yeah, right, would you right. want the Beatles to come mm. in and decide right. whether we're going to have a Middle East war? I mean, this is these are political positions. We shouldn't be having that. Well, you, <clears throat> I'm thinking. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm thinking as you're talking about something that uh, struck me a few months ago, and a person asked me whether I had read uh, a book called the 
Hunger Games, which yes. was turned into a movie and part of a trilogy, kind of A followed by B and followed by C. And I, I told a young woman that, no, I hadn't read the book and I hadn't even heard much about it. But as she described the basic thesis, I said I should take a look at this, and I, I downloaded it on my Kindle and read it. And, you know, the whole idea of the Hunger Games is that once a year in this particular story, uh, the people are supposed to elect people to go into a, a, a competitive situation and see who ends up not being killed, right. and you know, for the good of the society. And I'm saying, how can people... Uh, embrace this piece of writing and the cinematography and so forth where, as you say, they're sacrificing their own for the good of a society that's, uh, it's just craziness, but somehow that gains such wild popularity uh, that it's, I think, uh, a, a teachable moment to say what's going on in our society. It is, and you know, it's required. It was required reading at my daughter's school. Oh my heavens! Yeah, and, and I think it's required yeah. reading in a lot of schools. They all yeah. read it. Yeah. And my daughter read it, and we talked about it, and, I, and she said, "Yes, it reminds me. Maybe this is what you mean, Daddy, when you talk about communism." Ah, uh, right, right. So she got it, but some people don't. You but know, they, most, they don't yeah. understand. They don't put it into context. And yes, it's, it's very popular, and um, you know, it's uh, it's troubling. Um, this is part of this maybe this whole zeitgeist around um, Obama as as the Lord and Savior. How could he say that? I just don't get that. Mm. What does he think? Barack Obama is the Lord? Mm. Does he think Barack Obama is Christ? I mean, is that really what these people <clears throat> think? Yeah, you know, is is this particular artist into reincarnation? I mean, I guess that's the first question. Uh, I mean, it's uh, yeah. it's it's really you know, and the fact that. Um, I can already hear it now. Conservatives are going to be criticized for criticizing this. Uh, right, right, right. You know that, that we we are we're criticizing Barack Obama. You know that, that's right. I mean, it's it's not even anything to do with him. It's this. Uh, plus, I think that I think Obama himself knows how to play that game. Right. He, he's uh, if you listen to his speech patterns and the way he presents himself, I mean, he's brilliant at it. Hmm. Um, it's classic demagoguery. It's. Um, very much a style of communicating that is not the traditional American approach. Right. So it's uh, it's very robotic and it's extremely highly produced, and yet it has all the earmarkings of your classic left-leaning mm. doublespeak. You know, I mean, it's uh, you know the left. Everything is very indirect, very vague, very generalized. You don't hear anything that's really specific. It's all sort of almost a code language that, um, on the one hand, is completely disingenuous, but on the other hand, to average people, or maybe I should say less than average people, because uh, you know, according to uh, my guest yesterday, Sam Blumenfeld, the American education system has dumbed us down so much right. that, that such language is hypnotic. It actually draws you in. You listen to it and you think, you don't know what he's talking about, but you think it must be good because it sounds right. smart, and he certainly sounds authoritative when he says it, that you just, uh, it it draws you in. There's something mm. very, yeah. You know, I think there's something rather sinister mm. right. going on, on with that, that style of communication. 
And, uh, you know, if you look at the history of the left and you look at the writings, and one of my books deals with this. I mean, you know, the, I talk about a particular book written by Karl Marx called On the Jewish Question, which I point out is the fountainhead of modern anti-Semitism, um, that everything in there is extremely euphemistic and indirect. They don't call anything what it is. And uh, it's almost like they're speaking some kind of a shop talk. It's like an inside language. And the reason they do that is because they're dishonest. They can't come out and say exactly what they, they want to do because nobody would accept it. So they have to use, you know, all of these indirect, you know, sophistries and <clears throat> right. euphemistic jargon. Now, I'm not suggesting that conservatives don't sometimes resort to that, too. But generally speaking, and we're using, I'm using a generalization here, you don't find you find conservatives are a little bit more straightforward about what they believe, better for better or for worse. I mean, they, they, they'll tell you you can understand them. You know, they'll tell you what they think about something, and you know, you you kind of have a a fairly good idea of what they're about. I mean, I'm not suggesting that they don't also lie from time to time, mm. but but when they do, it's the exception. It's not. Uh, you know, it's not, the, you know, whereas on the left, the whole edifice is based on a lie. You know, the entire idea of what they're promoting is false, and the, so they have to put everything into these abstract contexts so that they can discuss it without directly discussing it. Of course, that might just, you could say that, I suppose, to degrees about all politicians. Anyways. <laughs> Well, let me go to another brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Please stay tuned. Delivered a sermon, and this was right after the election. 
where he said that, um, and I was outraged by this the more I thought about it, he referred to the example of um, Abraham um, attack, uh, you know, to sacrifice his son Isaac, the, what, what they call in in, uh, in Judaism the Akedah, as, as something that some rabbis, he didn't tell us who, but he claimed that some rabbis view that as an act of religious extremism, and that if there's one thing we can learn from this election that we had just had, there should be a decoupling of religion from politics. And, um, you know, the more I think about that, the more outraged I am over it. You know, again, this is a reform rabbi. It was very liberal. And that, first of all, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, or attempted, I mean, God stopped him at the last minute, it was not religious extremism. It would be religious extremism if you or I did it. You know, if we thought God was talking to us and coming to us over the TV set and we went out and murdered somebody, yeah, that's religious extremism. That doesn't happen. Um, but for Abraham, it was not religious extremism because he really was talking to God, at least according to what we're told to believe when we look at the Torah, and that um, it was an act of total acceptance of God and trust in God because uh, it was a test. And um, I think that Abraham knew that, that God wouldn't make him go through with it, and he didn't. Um, you know, it's sort of like um, claiming that it's an act of religious extremism for Jesus to have died on the cross. You know, this is, um, you know, it, it, this has nothing to do with today's religious attitudes. And, and as far as the election goes, I didn't see anything that, that I would view as religious extremism. Um, you know, this is um, you know, an attack again on, on people of faith and expressing that faith in public. And, and I guess I would have liked to have asked this rabbi, if I am to decouple my faith from politics, whether it, it be, mean me as a candidate for office or, or just as a citizen, then where am I to derive my moral and ethical code? Does that mean that people who derive their moral and ethical code from their faith should be prevented from doing that? And if we do that, then where do we expect, where does one derive it? Mike, what say you? Wait a minute. Hold it. I have a little technical problem here. There we go, Mike. Sorry about that. Okay. Okay. Yep. Again, I, I, as with you, I might ask the rabbi, to go beyond just the act that he's describing where Abraham hears the voice, takes his only son Isaac, etc., and goes off to offer him as a sacrifice, but to look into the history of Abraham and Sarah and their relationship to God, who met with them and said, go forth, and they had an experience of life, an experience of understanding God's will and God's plan, and then came a son Isaac, and then he grew up. And so when the word came to Abraham, it wasn't out of the blue, as if like, what did that mean to me? And to label it an act of extremism is to ignore the whole reality, it seems to me, of the history of God right. and Abraham. Exactly. It's also denying the the, the uh, miracle, miraculous aspect of what was going on at that time and in Abraham's life, which is, of course, what the Torah tells us. 
And, um, you know, it has nothing to do with any individual being thinking that God wants them to do something like that, um, which is not anything that anybody claims. You know, there's nothing in the Torah that yeah. would indicate that. Right. And also this idea that we should decouple our faith from our politics. I mean, where does one – I mean, I agree with the rabbi only to the degree that um, a person's individual theology should not necessarily be a part of his politics. You know, how he worships God, in other words, you know, whether or not he believes in the Trinity whether or not he believes in the virgin birth. You know, these are things that are not necessarily, you know, moral and ethical questions that um, that deal with um, our secular politics. But, you know, what about the entire moral and ethical code of the Torah? Hmm. What about the revelations at Sinai? That's what he's talking about. You know, in other words, people who opposed abortion, you know, that's what he's talking about. Right. People right. Who oppose gay marriage. I mean, they won't come out. Won't come out and say it. You know, again, the left likes to use euphemisms. Everybody in the room knew what he was talking about, mm. and they all kind of nodded their heads. Yeah. Right. And uh, you know, and, and 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 that's to oppose abortion is extreme. I mean, where, where did that start? You know, where, 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 since when? Right. Well, I guess on the other side of the coin, those who respect in the dignity of life and to revere and to do everything to protect life in each and every form, that's also, I guess, suppose for their rabbi, would be looked at as being an extreme situation. Like, wow, if you, you know, cherish your daughter or your son who has just arrived in the world, that's extreme. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, it, and this transcends any particular mm. re religion. It's a basic function of government mm. to, you know, to protect life. Mm. Now, whether or not we agree on abortion, okay. But the fact is that these are debates that need to be had by every government. Mm. Government, you know, another thing that, that C.S. Lewis said, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, leave, scientists, leave science for the scientists. Government is not science. Government is... Is 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 a sense of of morality, of justice, of of the meeting out of what is right for people. You know, it's 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 more in the realm of morality. It's not a science. And um, you know, we elect people to reflect our values, to work within a constitution. But we're not bound by science. I mean, this is one of the problems I have, not only with the left, and I get into this in my book, but also with the far right, in terms of the libertarians, the uh, you know people who follow Ayn Rand. Now, I agree we're all libertarian, but they, they reduce government to a science. In other words, government is only to be involved in maintaining the army, maintaining you know, policing, maintaining a court system, and, and, and honoring contracts, nothing more, and that everything else is up to the individual who is, the prime, who is premier. That doesn't work. I mean, that's why you've never had a, a libertarian elected to office. It's, it's not because it's not real. It, 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 that's not government is more than that. You know, it does get into questions of moral code and moral issues. I mean, are we going to regulate? Does that mean that we can't have laws that prevent child pornography? I mean, you know, it, there's nothing in the Constitution that says you can't. You know, but of course we do because we are. You know, we do have a society that reflects our morals. The only question is whose morals. Right. So anyways, but uh, I, the more I think about that, 
the more I think he was expressing one of the main lead motifs of this election. Mm, right. And anybody who introduces their their opinions, if those opinions are derived from a religious faith, that's bad because that is imposing on people. In fact, I heard a fellow talk show host recently say, uh, somebody who actually whose show is on this station, that it was unconstitutional for people to oppose abortion if they if they're deriving that opinion from their religion because it goes against the separation of church. <clears throat> right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Sure, I mean, sure, right. Yeah, I mean, in other words, mm-hmm. if you if you if you derive your moral code from your faith, you you know, you have to be banned. You know, that's what they did in the Soviet Union. Yeah, religion right. was taken over by the state and it was not allowed to take any moral positions. All they did was Wave incense and 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 hold uh, ceremonies. Same thing in Nazi Germany. That's you know in this country we we do look to religion for our moral code. Yeah, it's it just in in to me contrary to human nature and to common sense that each individual born into the world and raised and reared in a particular faith, no matter what that faith may be or no faith then there's a moral compass by which the individual lives. And that right. and every aspect of life is so crucial. You cannot ignore it. Exactly. And that's not to say that someone can't have a moral code and be an atheist, but why should religious people yield the floor to atheists right. and to people who do not subscribe to a religion and say, well, their moral code is constitutional because they're not formally a part of a religion, so-called. I mean, you know, this is uh, all moral codes are are to be debated in the public square, and to be judged and to be determined in terms of which has more worth uh, than the other. And again, I do separate that from theological questions, which do tend. In this country, the tradition is that those are private; those are things we all worship in our own way. Generally, we do so privately in our own space, in our own religious sanctuaries. But when it comes to moral questions, they're universal, and those are something that absolutely religions and individuals who are religious must step forward and and discuss and must do so quite vociferously. Right. Anyway, Mike, so what's Hmm. coming up at the church? Well, we're entering uh, this weekend coming up, the four weeks in preparation for the Christmas season, And that is to say that the first Sunday of Advent, the word Advent says that we're anticipating the coming of Christ. Uh, We have four weeks to prepare again for the incarnational event on December 25th. So it's a season of purple, a season of reflection. And again, the scripture readings in every Catholic church for the next four weeks will center on the end time, basically, that Mm -hmm. ultimately... There is an end to our existence here, and what happens next? Very good. And, and what about Advent candles? Are they lit during only Christmas? <clears throat> no, the Advent candles, again, because, as I said, four weeks, we have typically by tradition a an Advent wreath, meaning you have four candles, and each week you light one the second week you'll write two or I'm sorry, light two and so forth, leading up to the Christmas season when you have a fantastic aura of light itself. But the Advent candles indicate that progression uh up until the Christmas season itself. 
Kind of reminds me a little of the Hanukkah menorah. Uh, there's similarities, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for joining me this afternoon, as always. Well, you're welcome, and glad to be here to help out. Thank you, Mike, and we'll talk next week. Okay, very good. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Michael Wanowitz is Deacon of Our Lady of Sorrows Roman Catholic Church. We're going to take a brief break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Chuck Morse Speaks. This is your host, Chuck Morse. Please stay tuned. Welcome to the program, uh, 347-327-9849, if you'd like to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. We're expecting Ted Shobat up momentarily. Uh, We'll be discussing uh, the the Muslim Brotherhood agitation in Tahrir Square in in Egypt, and... uh, but I uh, happened to this article, which is posted on the Drudge Report, happened to catch my eye. This is from the CNS News Service, uh, Christian Network News. Black Friday, Treasury borrowed $211.69.69 per U.S. household on day after Thanksgiving, which is, in other words, almost a trillion dollars. The U.S. Treasury increased the net debt of the United States. 24 trillion, 24, what is it? Let me, I can't even read this number. Uh, let's see, it would be 100 billion, yeah, 24 billion, 327, well, 24 trillion? How could that be? <laughs> 327 billion, 48 million, 384 dollars and 38 cents. I guess so. On the day after Thanksgiving, which equals approximately 211 dollars and 69 cents, to each of the nation's 114,916,000 households. At the close of business last Wednesday, according to the Treasury, the national debt was $16,283,161,895. On Thanksgiving, the Treasury took the day off and did no borrowing. But on Friday... The Treasury increased the debt of the United States to sixteen trillion three hundred and seven 
billion. So in other words, it's not a trillion they borrowed. They borrowed, um, let's see, what's a bill here and there, right? Uh, they borrowed $22 billion on that one day. $24 billion, excuse me, $24 billion, $327 million. The Census Bureau estimated that as of September, there were approximately 114,916,000 households in the United States, so the $211.69 amount is per household based upon accounting estimates. Friday was also the first time in the history of the United States that the debt has topped $16.3 trillion. When President Barack Obama first took office on January 20, 2009, the national debt stood at $10 trillion, $626 billion. Since then, it has increased by $5 trillion, $680 billion. That means that since Obama has been president, the national debt has increased by about $49,432 per household. Can you imagine that? That's per year. CNS Newscom relies on individuals like you to help us report the news, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so how did this happen? How did the Treasury just simply borrow this money without it being reported? And yet the main topic in the media between now and the end of the year has been the so-called fiscal cliff. <clears throat> and the whole conversation is in the context of whether or not we should once again raise taxes, when in fact Obama understands, and people in the know, I believe, understand, that if they do raise taxes on the rich, even if they raise them by an enormous amount, like let's say 50%, you know, which maybe they raise them 100%, I don't know, they can't do that, I mean, that would be outright confiscation, but let's say they raise them 50%, it's still not going to make a dent here. You know, we're talking about $5 trillion that's since Obama's been in office. It's not going to matter if they raise taxes on the rich, because the fact is that the government has enough money. The, prob the problem is not that they don't have money. The problem, obviously, is that they're spending too much. It's not a problem of taxes. It's a problem of spending. They cannot seem to get the spending under control. And um, there's also, by the way, it should be pointed out as a concomitant issue, that if, um, if they do get the money and they do get that taxation, they're not necessarily going to use that money to reduce the deficit or to reduce the debt. In fact, it's very unlikely that they will. It seems much more likely that they will be using the money to increase spending and to borrow more and to, and to buy more stuff. I mean, we just saw a, pay, a notice in today's Boston Globe that they want to spend almost a trillion dollars more on Medicaid, which is basically health care for the poor, at least on the surface. But what it really is, is a gigantic financial emolument, a gigantic financial transfer to the health care industry. Um, you know, it's these sorts of programs, frankly, like the – well, not so much Medicaid in and of itself, but the expansion of Medicaid that has actually led to an increase in the cost of medicine. 
because you know if if these companies had to compete on the open market for people's purchases of of medical services then the price would go down uh because obviously the market would not bear these enormous costs so when you have a program like this that is expanded beyond simply helping people who are genuinely indigent you have basically the maintenance of artificial high prices and that's not good for anybody certainly not good for the consumer and it's only increasing the national debt anyway we're going to take a brief break you're listening to chuck morse uh, speaks this is your host chuck morse please stay tuned If you'd like to join the conversation, 347-327-9849. And we're waiting for Ted Shobat to arrive. Hopefully he'll be uh, on deck uh, momentarily. Uh, Ted is uh, the the author of books. He's he's here. He's a son of a former Muslim terrorist who was once a Muslim Brotherhood activist and PLO member. Says that we are just seeing the beginning of a very brutal age in Egypt where it won't be just about the state enforcing Sharia law, but also the masses and that but also the masses and that Christians and other non Muslims will be killed because that's what the law mandates. I don't know if that's gonna happen. I actually think that um the news emanating out of Egypt today is encouraging. And I say that because um Mohammed Morsi, the elected uh, premier, who is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, in the immediate aftermath, I think within a day or two after the um, the Gaza war, 
um, he tried to declare emergency powers. In other words, he tried to declare in the name of the people and all that that um, that the Egyptian that his office would have power over the judiciary and uh, that would have uh, fiat power. In other words, he attempted to take steps toward dictatorship. It was sort of like um, what what um, the, the National Socialist government of Hitler did in 1934 when they suspended the Reichstag, and he took he uh, he passed what was called an Enabling Act, which of course led to the to the uh, collapse of the uh, the constitutional system and and him as a total leader. Uh, that was further aided by the death of um, Paul von Hindenburg, who was the president of Germany. And once, once von Hindenburg died, which was about a year after Hitler had come to power, Hitler simply abolished the office of president, and he became Fuhrer. He became dictator. So that, that looked like what was going on in, in Egypt, but yet today there's been a lot of agitation on the street, and um, there has been uh, an indication that um, Morsi actually is stepping away from it um, and responding to massive protests that apparently will be ratcheting up tomorrow in Tahrir Square. So I think that it looks to me that what's going on is that the Egyptian people are saying that they do not want to have another dictatorship, whether that be whether that uh, dictatorship be um, that of Mubarak, who was a, sort of a, a more secular figure, or whether it be a Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, at least that's that's what I hope I see happening. Okay, I believe we have uh, Theodore Shobat on the line. Uh, Ted, is that you? Yes, sir, this is me. Thanks for joining me. You're the son no of a problem. former Muslim terrorist who was once a Muslim Brotherhood activist and PLO member. Uh, you have a book out uh, regarding your... Um, understanding of politics in the Middle East, uh, Ted. What's uh, you know? I'm looking at the uh, the news today, and it looks like um, there is being a, a pretty vigorous reaction on the street to the Muslim Brotherhood president of Egypt's uh, declaration of enhanced powers. Um, what do you, what do, what do you see going on there, and what do your sources tell you? That's a good question. Well, what's happening right now is you have a huge like you said, a huge amount of the population that does not want a dictatorship as they live under uh, Mubarak. They want a separation of power. They want a, 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 a executive branch, and they want a judicial branch. So you have the president, uh, Mursi, then you have the judges. Well, Mursi, what he wants to do is he wants to override the power of the judges. He, he wants to override the judicial branch of the government. Um, what I see happening, though, is that uh, is, here's the difference. Now, the all these protesters think that because they got rid of Mubarak, that they can get rid of Morsi. Here's the here's the, the difference. Mubarak resigned voluntarily. He could have killed all those protesters that were against him easily, just like Saddam Hussein did. Right. But he didn't. He chose to resign. Morsi does not want to resign. He's not going to. He will use... Uh, enough military force to suppress the protests, in fact. So what I see going on is eventually this is going to escalate to a civil war. I think a civil war will ultimately um, erupt. In fact, there was an interview done today uh, between uh, the Daily News in, uh, in Egypt and El Baradai, 
And uh, al-Baradai is considered to be the father of the revolution. He was always uh, esteemed as a moderate by CNN. But uh, al-Baradai also sees a civil war, and he predicted today that as long as this violence continues, you, uh, the, the violence is going to get so bad, the protests so vicious, and, 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 and the, the opposition against Mursi are going to be so hateful toward the regime that eventually a, a civil war will, will become inevitable. Well, I mean, I think that uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, apparently, uh, according to reports I'm reading today, Morsi is backing down, uh, that he had a meeting with the uh, with judges uh, that went on for several hours yesterday, and he came out of that meeting with some kind of a face-saving comment about um, his re-recognition of the authority of an independent judiciary in Egypt. and. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, and plus the, he is looking at this big protest in Tahrir Square, and uh, I'm not sure that he really could just go in and mow people down. I mean, I, I don't know if Egypt Egypt is not quite the same as Iraq, and I think that um, Mubarak actually did try that a little bit, and then he resigned. And I just don't. Uh, maybe he's um, he's evaluating the situation, and he's realizing that that's not that's not going to be the way to go. Well, you are you are correct in saying that uh, he did try to compromise. Uh, there was a, an article that came out several hours ago, yeah, showing that he 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 did express one form of compromise, and that was that he would give all the all of the appropriate power to the judiciary branch, but that he will keep the power and that he will become the sole protector of the constitutional council. And the Constitutional Council is the group of Egypt that was formed by the parliament. Uh, and this group is supposed to be responsible for drafting the new Egyptian constitution post-Mubarak. Uh, the problem, though, is that, uh, according, just, just, I mean, look at the words of Morsi. He wants to become the protector of the Constitutional Council. It means he wants to control uh, how the constitution comes out. Now, sure. the, cons- the, the Constitutional Council... Let's not forget was formed by the parliament, which is when it was when it was established, uh, 75% Islamist, consisting of either Salafist or Muslim Brotherhood. So the bottom line is that whether or not he gives some sort of power to to the judges, whether or not he 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 sticks with his guns and says I'm going to become a dictator, what whatever happens, what will occur. And this is guaranteed, is that Egypt will become a Sharia state. Because what the Egyptian people can agree on, whether or not they want dictatorship or whether many of them want uh, separation of powers, is that Sharia needs to become uh, a dominant uh, uh, juris, uh, jurisprudence to be observed. Because well, it, it means, yeah, go let, on. Let me ask you a little bit about that, because uh, obviously there is visible evidence that uh, Egypt is moving in the direction of a Sharia state given the fact that uh, Morsi was elected, you know, and he is a, uh, a main player in the Muslim Brotherhood, which is um, at least uh, we could talk about what they're about, but, I mean, I think it's fair to say that they do adhere to a, a modern ver- version of Sharia. Mm-hmm. But yet Egypt itself has never had a tradition of, of, of radical Islam and of, um, of jihadism and, and of Sharia, Going way back, I mean, going back to the uh, days of the Turks and going back to um, those days when Napoleon was there in, in 1799. I mean, they've always been somewhat of a, um, 
I would never I would not in any way say secular, but I would say a different society, perhaps mm-hmm. from from much of the rest of the Islamic world. They've always had some fairly good uh, non-Muslim populations there, Coptic, Christians, Jews, and others. Mm-hmm. And, and they've always had a, a fairly consistent history of a somewhat secularized establishment. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the case of Morsi, they have elected a, a, um, a Muslim Brotherhood president. Does this mean that Egypt really could become a radical Sharia state, maybe cast mm-hmm. in the same mode as Iran? And would the Egyptian people put up with that? That's a good question. You know, when my father, when he was living in the in the West Bank, the older generation hated Islamic fundamentalism, uh, and it was it was actually the youths who wanted Islamic fundamentalism because the elderly people they lived under the Ottoman Turks, and the Ottoman sure. Turks ruled with an iron fist. The Ottoman Turks were Islamists. Uh, the Ottoman Turks, uh, you know, believed in expanding Islamic power. So the elderly, they lived the, the, the bitter herb, so to say. The young people did not, and they were, being, and they were very idealistic. So my, in the 70s, Islam was still dormant. Islamic fundamentalism was dormant. Uh, in the West Bank at that time, during my father's teenage years, there were many communists. They were people who could insult Islam. I don't want to say the insults, but they could insult Islam all they want. Nothing would happen to them. In the 80s, all of a sudden, there was a shift in culture. The, uh, as the elderly began to die out more, young people became more and more present, became getting older. Their idealism was still there. It was still lodged in their hearts. And that idealism became stronger and stronger. And pretty soon, now we have the West Bank. So it's not impossible for Egypt for the same thing to happen. In fact, it's, it's, it's what's going to happen. It's inevitable. Because think about it. In September of this year, you have you had the uh, the the, the uh, president of the Supreme Judicial Council of Egypt, Hossam Ghariani. Now this now the the Supreme Judicial Council right now, many of them are against Morsi because they don't want a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, the Supreme Judicial Council wants Sharia because the head of the council, Hossam Ghariani, in September. He said that the majority of Egyptian people want Sharia, I'll, I'll, and I'll read to you what he to, uh, I'll read to you what he said for further clarification. He said the country did not have a desire to enforce Sharia. Okay, you want Islamic Sharia, then elect the ones who will enforce it. Then he asked the question: Do the Egyptian people want the lawman to enforce Islamic Sharia? Yes, the majority of the Egyptian people want Islamic Sharia. There were conferences that were held to put into law Sharia edicts. So we know for a fact that, that the majority of people want it. We know for a fact that the culture is shifting. In fact, look at the, uh, the in Libya. Look at the embassy which was attacked. Look at the photographs that were taken of the, of the Libyans defacing the American flag. Do you see any elderly people? No, they're young people. These are youths. So there's a shift in the culture, no doubt. This is not... Uh, the Egypt of Jamal Abdel Nasser anymore. So there's definitely right, a shift in let, culture. Let, let me ask you about that because I mean, there's an old saying that was once um, said by um, Attorney General Harry Doherty under the Coolidge administration when he said that the best way to get rid of a bad law is to enforce it. And mm-hmm. I think that um, 
you know, they may want to have Sharia, and we could talk about exactly what that means. But when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, when it comes down to actually the reality of that, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that Egypt, even with a, sh- a, a shift in maybe some idealistic notions, that, that people are going to want to tolerate it. And I think that, um, for example, I, in Iran, I don't think people are really that comfortable with it. And uh, there's been, you know, some rumblings of um, of moving back into a more more modern more modernity in in the way mm-hmm. they govern themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I guess that um, first of all. What exactly do you mean by Sharia laws? What laws would be put in place? And mm-hmm. secondly, are the people of Egypt, regardless of the of the numbers of people who believe in this, are they going to tolerate it? And and I'll, I'll mention one minor issue that just came up that I was looking at the New York Times the other day. Mm-hmm. In the aftermath of the Gaza War, there's a image of young girls going to school and finding that their school had been shut down because the Hamas has become more radical there in response and in reaction, and they're shutting girls out of their schools. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something that the population is going to tolerate? I mean, are, are girls and women going to tolerate that for long? I mean, it might might last for a while. Mm-hmm. But So what, what do you mean? What kind of Sharia laws would be put in place? Uh-huh. That's a good question. For one thing, uh, when we're talking about Sharia, what is sh- let's go down to the fundamentals. Yeah. What does Sharia mean? Sharia literally means the way. Well, the way of what? Well, the way of Islam. So in order for us to know uh, what sh- the Sharia code is, I don't like to call it law. I don't see that as a law, but I mm-hmm. see it as, a, as an enforced code. Sure. Uh, you have you have to read the Quran. So let's look into the Quran. Let's see. In the, in the surah entitled The Table Spread, let's see what it says. It says, The punishment of anyone who fights against Allah and his apostle and does mischief in the land is to be killed or crucified or to have their hands and feet from opposite ends or be banished from the land. Now, one of these uh, executions which I mentioned, forms of execution in Arabic is called qatal. Qatl is a public execution, and then you have salb. Salb in the Arabic literally translates into crucifixion. So just a number of months ago, there were a number of people crucified in front of the presidential palace in Egypt. Now many people were calling it a myth, but we did further research into this, and we actually found the photographs that were taken of these victims that were crucified. And if you see the photographs, uh, you see one guy where his entire rib cage is removed. It looks like he was bitten by a great white shark. So this happened in front of the presidential palace. And when I saw that, I saw that as a foreshadowing of what was to come. And I said, well, what is to come in the near future is an Islamic state in which these types of punishments are uh, enacted, which these types of punishments are inflicted upon certain peoples of the population. Now, how do I know that for sure? Well, one only needs to look at North Sudan. North Sudan is very similar to Egypt in that, for one thing, it's in Africa. It's in the same continent. And it is ruled under an Islamic, uh, sorry, not just an Islamic, but a specifically a Muslim Brotherhood government. Omar al-Bashir is a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. His party, the National Congress Party, is a, 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 an extension of the Muslim Brotherhood from Egypt. Him and Morsi are very good friends. And if you look at North Sudanese law, one of the laws there for people who are supposedly criminals or are against Islam is crucifixion. In mm-hmm. fact, I, had, I, I did an interview with an expert in North Sudan who goes to North Sudan and sees how it's like in there. 
his name is Ed Lyons, and he reported to me that there was a man in North Sudan who was a Christian, a 15-year-old teenager, and his uh, employer had him crucified, and he said, if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to die like Jesus, and he was crucified and left there for about, I believe, three or four days. And, and, and when you say crucified, are we, are, we, are we talking about like the way Jesus was crucified, the way the Very Romans similar. There's, there's many different I mean, there's, It doesn't necessarily have to be two pieces of wood. It could be on a tree. It could be on a plank. There's okay. different methods of crucifixion. So and that, we, is this yeah. a, like is this actually a part of the um, the North North Sudanese law that that, that yes. they they uh, But but is that going to fly in Egypt? I mean Egypt is North Sudan well, is somewhat of a backwater. I mean Egypt is, is a big cosmopolitan country. I, I can't imagine them starting to crucify <laughs> Christians. I mean at least in mass. Oh well, if you look at the recent report that I've found, you have the entire Christian population living between the Gaza Strip and Egypt, for example, living near the Sinai Peninsula. Right. They're all gone. Well, why are they all gone? Because you had armed men uh, go into their neighborhoods, go into their, their shops with machine guns, and say, if you, uh, you have this a certain amount of time to leave or you're going to die. This is the thing. Right. So anti-Christian uh, sentiments are fermenting in Egypt Worse and worse and worse. Raymond Ibrahim did a whole study on this, and I'd recommend any of the listeners, and even and even yourself, to go read it. It's very eye-opening. Uh, and 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 you mentioned cosmopolitan. I mean, let's look at let's talk about cos- uh, uh, technology and stuff. People, I've heard this argument before. They say, well, the world is changing, and people have technology and computers and Facebook and Twitter. Why in the world would they want to become so barbaric? Look, now let's look at the Syrian revolution. The Syrian revolution, many atrocities have been committed by the Free Syrian Army. And I remember I did a whole documentary on Syria. It's called uh, it's called Bloodthirsty Syrian Rebels, for whoever wants to look it up on Google. And it's and it, all of and all the atrocities that I have placed in this documentary were filmed by the rebels using what cameras and cell phones, and they were pu- placed on the internet. You can give a barbaric people internet. Cell phone, oh, yeah, no, I, cameras, that's, that's technology, and it's, they're still no, going to become barbaric. It doesn't mean anything. What no, matters course, is what's in anything, the, it enhances it. I think that Bin Laden proved that. I mean, those, you know, yeah. you, you can have the technology and all the infrastructure. But uh, I think what we're talking about here, Ted, what you seem to be des- describing, is you know the the Islamic equivalent of a communist country. I mean, this reminds me of um, you know the old Soviet Union when Lenin took over. I mean, they, they start to murder. And massacre anyone who is entire classes of people who oppose the regime. I mean, Lenin instituted that in in 1918. He started mm-hmm. murdering the kulaks, who were basically people who owned a little bit of land, Russian peasants who actually started to, uh, you know, develop somewhat of a middle class, and they were beginning to own land. He murdered millions of them. He just sent his uh, the Cheka out, and they rounded them up and murdered them. So, I don't doubt for a minute that what you're talking about is true. Um, mm-hmm. in this, in, the only difference is that it's being done in the name of Islam instead of in the name of um, yes. world communism, but it's the same thing. Um, there's definitely an intersection, by the way, historically between communism itself and the emergence of radical Islam, which I think mm-hmm. has been profoundly influenced by communism and by national socialism back in the 1930s and 40s. So I, I, I'm not in any way doubting what you're saying, and, and that mm-hmm. yes. I think that if Morsi perhaps is successful 
in terms of um, turning around, uh, you know, confronting the, the people who oppose them, then you, they could implement this kind of a regime in mm-hmm. Egypt. I mean, I, I don't doubt that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's also look at the the. Let's take another point to perspective. Let's say that the, there's many people going against Mubarak, but what? But why are they going against Mubarak? They're not going against him because he's Muslim Brotherhood. They're going against him because he wants to become dictator. If you even if you, like I said earlier in this interview, even if you let's say leave Egypt with a, exec, a executive branch Mursi and the judiciary branch, which is the judicial, the Supreme Judicial Council. Even if you mm-hmm. leave these separations of powers and, and let them uh, observe their necessary responsibilities, you're still going to have a shitty estate. So the, the protesters aren't, uh, you know, they're not saints. Th- those same people w- right. wouldn't mind having a Sharia compliant country. Let's not forget Mohammed Yursi Salman, who was uh, the executive member of the Al Dastur uh, party, the Constitution Party. The Al Dastur party was founded by Mohammed Al Baradai. Who was praised by CNN during the before before Mubarak was ousted as the father of the of the Egyptian Revolution, and he was extolled as a as a moderate. So, and 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 let's look at what his executive member said. He said the majority of people want Sharia, and now it's time for Sharia to be implemented. And I, and, I'll, and if you want, I could read for you the quote. No, I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about what Sharia will mean. Uh, so mm-hmm. far, you've mentioned that it means execution and crucifixion of anyone mm-hmm. who is viewed as an enemy of the state, which, again, mm-hmm. I, I say is no different than communism or Nazism. What are some of the other aspects of Sharia law that would be implemented in this country? Well, that's a good question. In the in the, in the the Quran, for example, let's talk about that uh, for a minute. The the uh, the uh, the Mujahideen Shura Council, for example, said that in that in the uh, in the pure Islamic society, the the Islamic Messiah, who the Sunni called the Mahdi or the Shiite called the Imam, the Twelfth mm-hmm. Imam, he will come and I'll read to you what they what they wrote. They will come to destroy the cross and to slash the throats of those who believe in the cross. So the Sharia includes a destruction of Christianity. In fact, the Arab historian Al-Waqidi, who was one of the greatest of Arab historians for Islamic history, he said that Muhammad had such a repugnance to the form of the cross that he broke everything brought into his house with that figure upon it. So it is... And it is also prophesied that the Mahdi will come to destroy the cross, and he will kill the swine, the people who eat pork, revoke the the capitation tax, and distribute goods in abundance. Property will be so vast that no one will accept it as charity. So he will destroy Christianity, kill off all the Jews, all the non-believers, and he will take all the property of the world and distribute the wealth, so to speak. So it will be. It's really a, what the, what the the ultimate goal for Sharia is to establish a socialistic state in which there's right. no private property and there's no Christianity. So you're, I think you're absolutely right in in paralleling it with uh, Lenin's Russia. That's right, and I think that in a sense, and and um, I mean I, I've written on this topic, and I'm actually working on a book myself that there's a lot of parallels between the growth of radical Islam or a very radicalized understanding mm-hmm. of the Quran 
and the growth and the development of the communist movement, and, and, and that's literal. I mean, a lot of these guys were trained in Moscow. Uh, I point out that, for example, the uh, people that were around the Ayatollah Khomeini, they were trained in schools in Moscow. I mean, this is, uh, you know, the, they were communists dressed in Islamic oh, yeah. garb. And yeah. uh, you know, they, they were the, the I think what the communists did and what the to a degree what the Nazis did was that they isolated certain aspects of the Quran and they threw out the rest of it and they magnified those because those resonated with the communist ideology. And they said, I mean, am I wrong to think, Ted, that um, the radical Islamic um, movement today, that you know, that the, the uh, you know what you call the you know the Salafists, whatever, the Muslim Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. That that that's not exactly the same as as traditional Islam. I mean, there's something about it that has a rather modern and, quite frankly, communistic element to it. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that it was manufactured in modern times. I mean, I don't think that, for example, the Ottoman Empire was this radical. Mm-hmm. Well, I, okay. Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I believe that true Islam traditional islam as you refer to it as i think it is very traditionally it is very socialistic because right. in sahih in sahih muslim for example in the hadith muhammad said that the ummah is like one huge human body if the eye has pain then the rest of the body comes and destroys that pain so muhammad wanted to have a collectivist society so it you know, collectivism i mean Forget about Marxism. Just talking about just, just in regards to Islam, collectivism is inherited in the Islamic ideology. Sure. Um, the idea of and, and you say that the Ottoman Turks weren't this radical. Well, uh, I mean, if you look at the Armenian genocide, I'll have to disagree with you there. Even Ataturk, as uh, they say, he was such a, uh, uh, a moderate and he was so pro-Western. Uh, Ataturk himself, after the Armenian genocide, said that we have now destroyed our enemy, the Christians. So they were very radical in those days. My uh, my grandfather lived under the Ottomans, and he told me how cruel and how barbaric they were, how destructive they were. So Muhammad himself wanted a collectivist society. He wanted world empire. That is why uh, Islam spread so quickly at such an early age since its, sure. uh, military, since its, since its origination. Yeah. I mean, Muhammad was living in the 600s, and by right. 7-11... It's safe to say that Muhammad was not just the spiritual founder of Islam, but he was a military leader. He was the head of state of of Arabia, and that uh, it was always a military and political uh, faith as much as a spiritual faith. And uh, in this sense, they do share the same vision as the communists as well, which is this idea of having a one-world government. I mean, Islam is – the word Islam means to submit – and the idea is that because there's one God in heaven, that being Allah, there has to be only one government on earth in order to yes. achieve this utopian idea. And, of course, uh, you know, we in the West may wave a finger at that, but we've had our own internationalist movements here. We, besides communism and Nazism, I think you could say that the British and the French colonists were, were involved with world conquest in the 19th century. So it's, it's a darker side of human nature, this idea of conquering the world and creating a, a one government. Now, as far as the Ottomans go, the only thing I might quibble with you a little bit on that is that the, um, the Armenian atrocity was carried out by the three Pashas. 
and that mm-hmm. they were, you know, the young Turks. I mean, they were modernizers. They were not. They were influenced, I think, by socialism. They were not traditional Muslims. They were not part of the Tanzimat movement, which was more of a, a traditional Islamic movement led by the Caliph. I mean, when they were ruling uh, Turkey in World War One, the Caliph had only become a figurehead. And mm-hmm. that they were radical secularists. They were as, as mm-hmm. anti-Muslim as they were anti-Christian. Uh, mm-hmm. And that you know, and same thing for Ataturk. I mean, he was um, he was anti-Muslim and anti-Christian. And I think mm-hmm. that what they did was they created a secular state. Now, I want to. Mm-hmm. I saw an article by you recently that I actually wanted to ask you about in this sense. That you said that you feel that Turkey may be trying to. Um, intervened and inject itself into the politi- into the instability in Syria with this idea of re-resurrecting the Ottoman Empire, or at least the Turkish Empire. And um, I think that one of the mistakes that was made, in my opinion, by Ataturk in 1924 was when he abolished the caliphate, and he basically sent the caliph packing. I think he moved to France. Mm-hmm. And you know, in a sense, the caliph of Turkey had a moderating influence on Islam. It was sort of like the influence of the pope on, on Catholicism um, in that he was able to make Islamic rulings. He was able to uh, – he had like an Islamic judge, group of judges, and they were able to, I guess you might say, even modernize Islam and, and homogenize it to modern times. And without that, you don't have anyone like that in Islam now. There's no leader. So you have people like bin Laden stepping in and, uh, you know, and others who are claiming to speak in lieu of, of a caliph. Mm-hmm. What say you, so, Ted? Well, I, I, I believe that the, the, it was good that he got rid of the caliphate. And I know the story you're talking about. He did send him packing. I saw yeah. the, the black and white footage of it. Um but I, I, I disagree with you because Ataturk really he was he was neutered by the uh, the Western forces, the the Armenian genocide. He, you know he supported that genocide, and Ataturk himself. You're right, he was part of the Young Turks, but he himself believed uh, that he he needed to get rid of the French occupiers, and the French in fact helped a lot of the Armenians in Turkey migrate to France as uh, as uh, refugees. Right, and it prevented the Ar- the Armenians to from further from further being uh, massacred. So I don't see Ataturk at all as a moderate individual, yeah, regardless of whether or not he believed in certain maybe certain Western ideas. I don't see that as a moderate as, at all. And the fact well, that the uh, the caliphate wanted right. to establish world empire, but uh, the the fact that that the caliphate wanted to establish world empire. The fact that the Ottoman Empire wanted to to establish a universal empire, that tells me that they're not moderates at all. They want to take over the world. And you mentioned the French in the 19th century, Napoleon. Mm. Well, I, I wouldn't consider Napoleon a moderate individual either. He wanted to take over the he wanted to take over all of the all of the world as well. So I don't blame uh, I, I don't blame you for criticizing the, Napoleon. So we should always be fair and 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 uh, give what is deserved. The Ottoman Empire inflicted some of the most atrocious uh, uh, massacres and oppressions that we can read about. Uh, look at the punishment of the Hazuk, for example, for example, in which they would take a gigantic stick 
and place it into the uh, the the anus of the victim and and push all the way up up to his neck and make and let him uh, make him hang there for 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 days in uh, as a tor- as a way of torture and a way as, as a way of execution. I mean, it wasn't uh, Mr. Gentle, uh, you know, moderate moderation. So no, the I'm idea, not saying they were nice guys, but I, oh, I I'm, think... I'm not saying you were, but I'm just uh, bringing further clarification. But the uh, the idea of a caliphate, in my opinion, is actually uh, quite dangerous because the last thing you want is for the Muslim world to unite as one. The caliphate will unite the Muslim world, and it will make it will actually compel the the all, every Muslim to surpass his prejudices against other sects. So, for example, the Sunni will no longer hate the Shiite; he will unite with the Shiite. To, to be under the caliphate. Right. So the last so I would rather have, for example, um Iran hate the Saudis and them have e- kill e- have them kill each other than for them to unite against the Western world. A caliphate will have that uh will have that will make that happen. A caliphate will make the Shiite and the Sunni unite. Uh and like I said in the in the Islamic theology, in the Islamic uh, uh, scriptures, the 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 caliphate when he comes, the ultimate caliphate that is the, the Messiah, and I I do believe an Islamic Messiah will come. When he does come, all the Muslims will unite on his side, and once that happens, the this caliphate will be such a tyrant that he will want to destroy Christianity. And I mean not just in the Middle East. But I'm talking about in the other Western countries. He will he will be bent on the universal empire. Well, I just I only bring it up because I think that perhaps the, I'm looking at the office of the caliphate in a Western context that mm-hmm. it could be a moderating force because yeah. a caliphate who is the spiritual head, not the political head, but the spiritual head of Islam, could pass new rulings. That in the same way that the Pope has done for Catholicism, in the same way that the rabbis have done in Judaism and the Talmud, yeah. that would basically modify aspects of the Quran and that bring it into modern times. And I think that even as 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 authoritarian as the Ottoman Empire was, it was generally a lot more moderate than than what you have now with uh, you know Al Qaeda and with um, you know mm-hmm. the more radicalized. Um, Islamic movements, uh, you know, in terms of its if its control, and it was in power for well over 400 years. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that uh, I, I guess that I, I would not think that it would be a bad development to have a unifying figure in Islam, as long as it's not one that's calling for jihad. And if they want to call for jihad, then we should meet them in the field of battle. I mean, the, the Western mm-hmm. world will have to, you know, gird its loins and sally forth. You know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and be done with it. I don't, I don't think that you know. Look at the Soviet Union wanted to conquer the world too, but uh, they were met in the field of battle in the Cold War by the Western powers who uh, mm-hmm. encircled them. It was called containment. So mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, I think that in, in a sense there would be an advantage mm-hmm. to having a spiritual leader because right now you just have a bunch of radicals who are kicking the you know what out of each other and and are threatening the peace of the of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. But a caliphate will make that even worse because it will become a unified empire and a much more organized okay. empire. You can't have a you can't. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying in the in the Western context, but you can't have a, a man 
who wants to, let's say, unite both Shiite, Sunni, Druze, and Alawite, and then be a moderate. Because the Muslim world doesn't work that way. The, the idea of compliance, for example, in the Islamic world, it does not exist. Uh, so you can't expect a man to rise up. Now, a good example is the, is, is the Egyptian elections after Mubarak, was, after Mubarak resigned. You had Al-Baradai right. and you had Mursi, and you had other, you had other uh, uh, candidates. Well, who won? The person that won was Mursi. Mursi was much more Islamic than Al-Baradai. Al-Baradai was more moderate. At least he tried to portray himself as more of a moderate. Mm-hmm. So you can't expect the entire Muslim world. It's like saying that a – it's like the equivalent of saying that a French homosexual is going to rise up and try to unite the Muslim world. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible. Okay. Um, suppose, you're, you're right in that it, it, wherever there's been an election or whatever, wherever there's been someone who has risen up, it has been the more radical Muslim. I mean, we could go back to the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. I mean, certainly exactly. that's been the case in, in Gaza. You have uh, Hamas elected. I don't think there's any reason to assume that if the West Bank became a sovereign state that they wouldn't also elect a radical Islamist government eventually. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So now, 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 put that into a universal perspective. We're not talking about just one country. We're not talking about just the West Bank and Egypt. We're talking about the West Bank, Egypt, Somalia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Syria, uh, pretty much all of North Africa. Mm-hmm. Look at look at what the the former Israeli diplomat Yoram uh, Edinger had to say. He said that the culture of compliance is foreign to the Middle East, which has not experienced intra-Muslim compliance with most intra-Muslim agreements in the last 1,400 years. You can't, you, you, it's, it's, uh, it's very difficult f- to believe that the, uh, if the Muslim world is going to unite, they're going to unite with somebody, or under somebody that is, uh, that is uh, influenced or tainted with Western values. Look at Iraq. America thought that they were going to help implement democracy and make Iraq a better place. Now, whether or not that was their uh, tr- true intention, I don't know. But that's what they were saying. And and they took out Saddam Hussein. The Iraqi people hung him. But is Iraq more of a safe place? I don't think so. Iraq was actually safer in, uh, when it was under Saddam Hussein. Now that Saddam Hussein is gone, you have all the Iraqi people. They want a Islamic government. They want a Shiite uh, sorry, uh, yeah, they want the Shiite country. Once America allows them to vote for whoever leader they want, they're going to vote for somebody like Morsi, maybe even worse, someone worse than Saddam Hussein, more dangerous than Saddam Hussein. I've, I've talked with people who who have fought in Iraq, and they would tell me that the, for example, that the Mahdi army, which is one of the most um, powerful mafias, mafia, uh, terrorist groups in Iraq. They're protected. The Americans won't touch them. American soldiers won't attack them, even though they're very dangerous terrorists, even though they're very influential. So uh, the ousting of Saddam didn't help because the Iraqi people in general don't want a American-style democratic government. They want a Sharia-compliant government. In fact, in the Shiite scriptures, it says that when the end of days come, Persia will conquer Babylon. So once America leaves, Iran is going to want to extend its power into Iraq, and the Iraqi people will be okay with that because the Iraqi people are majority Islamic fundamentalists. Right, or I think that they're Shiites. Um, yes, yes, Shiites. 
Ted, let me. Uh, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I mean, I just want to observe that um, your, your thesis is largely correct. I mean, the the area has become more radicalized, more Sharia oriented as the decades have gone on, from all the way from the end of World War II up until today. I mean, uh, that's certainly true with regard to the enemies of the state of Israel. Uh, Israel, as we've seen, is facing a much more strident and much more radicalized um, Islamic enemy, in, certainly in Gaza and in elsewhere. And, um, and that, that seems to be spreading continually throughout the Arab and Islamic world, at least um, the part in the Middle East. I, I think that there are other Islamic areas that are not as radical, like Indonesia is not. But um, I'm talking about the epicenter of it, which is emanating out of Saudi Arabia and in, in concentric circles, that is becoming more radicalized. So my question to you, Ted, is, therefore, as somebody who has a background in this, as someone whose father had a background in it, what do we do? You know, the old question that Lenin asked, <laughs> you know, about what, what's to be done? Well, what's to be done is that uh, the, the, uh, the American government should not be giving any type of confidence or any type of support to these groups. When Obama was first elected, he went to Egypt had the Muslim Brotherhood uh, members be able to s sit in the front of the, uh, of the crowd, said that he was willing to work with the Muslim Brotherhood, considered the Muslim Brotherhood a moderate group, and that gave extreme groups and confidence. Did he actually say the Muslim Brotherhood was a moderate group? He, can, he considers them a moderate group that they, that they are willing to work with. They are willing to extend their hands to work with the Muslim Brotherhood. So that gave the the uh, the message to the Muslim Brotherhood that the most powerful country on earth is willing to work with us. Well, how do you think the revolution sparked so well because of that confidence, that morale booster? So the American government cannot be giving um, um, uh, confidence to these groups. And there, another another aspect that we should always be focusing on also is the Christian populations in these countries, the cops. The Christians, for example, in Syria, who are being persecuted by the rebels, um, 80,000 Christians were exiled out of their homes in Homs by the Free Syrian Army, the, the group that John McCain thought were a bunch of uh, nice guys. So we cannot – I think we as a people should be focusing on the Christian population because I believe a holocaust will be taking place against them in the future. We need to be – lending whatever support we can to help these people because as Americans we are supposed to be for liberty, uh, life, and the pursuit of happiness. So, Well, in a, in a practical sense, I mean, I guess my question is two-part, but in a practical sense, what does that mean that we should do as, as Americans and as, as the Western democracies? And also, on the, conversely, what is there a future for Islam in the world? I mean, is... Uh, okay. Is there a way for Islam to ever become a more moderate uh, and more, frankly, westernized and Christianized faith, to be right. quite honest? Right. Well, the, 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 the Christian churches in America – I'm not talking about uh, strictly the, the U.S. government, but the, the, the churches in America have been so silent on the persecution of the cops in Egypt, especially the, the mainstream uh, huge you know, mega churches. They're not talking about this, and they need to be informing their congregants. Because we as Christians should help, be helping other Christians around the world, so we need to be the pastors need to be. And, and I go and I go to churches and I, and, and I tell us the congregations about about the cops and, and tell them about what's going on. The Christians in Sudan, over three million people massacred by Omar al Bashir, uh, most of them Christians. Uh, 
the, the Christian population in America needs to be knowing about this and with that knowledge, seeing whatever they can do, whether it's giving money, whether it's, it, it is uh, uh, fighting for Christians coming in to the, into the country, giving them amnesty. Churches also have the ability to provide a shelter for these people. I've, I've read about it. Churches have given or have uh, helped Christians come into this country by saying that we will have these people work in the church or as refugees stay in the church. So we need to uh, focus on that as well. So expect, I think we should expect the Holocaust to happen. I mean, look at look at what happened during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Uh, most of the Jews didn't know what was going on in America. Most of the Jews, even though they were told by Pierre Van Passen before the Holocaust ever took place, that mm-hmm. there was going to be a massacre. The Jews, many of them didn't care in America. Many of them didn't care until after the fact or until the fact, until the damage was already done. So just as the Jews in America were compliant or didn't were careless uh, right. during the Holocaust, the Christians ha- are doing the same mistake, making the same mistake, and they can't be doing that. They cannot be on the wrong side of history. No, I mean, I, I think you're, you're, you're basically saying that there's a, there is and there probably has been and certainly will be a ratcheting up of a Holocaust against non-Muslims in the Middle East, whether they be Christians or whether they be Jews living in the state of Israel. I mean, we just saw thousands mm-hmm. of missiles fired into Israel. Why were they being fired into Israel? To kill Jews. Right. And that's, I mean, there's not, nothing else to that. They cannot tolerate the existence of a sovereign state not Muslim, especially one that's Jewish in the middle of the Middle East. But, um, yes, I mean, I, I think that you're, you're sounding the, the clarion call there, and you're, you're pointing out that um, the conscience of, uh, of the Western democracies and of moderate Muslims needs to be, shared, needs to be stirred, and, um, you know, they need to stand up to it and not be intimidated by the threats that, that emanate out of that part of the world, which I think is a big part of this. I think that we're all afraid to, uh, to criticize because we see that we're dealing with terrorists who will kill us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and to answer your last question, yeah. uh, does Islam have a future? I don't think so because Islam will always remain Islam. If you change Islam, it won't be Islam anymore. It's like saying, can we reform Christianity? Well, you can't do that. Then it won't be Christianity anymore. So technically you can't really reform Islam as a religion. People can change their opinions, but you can't really reform the religion. Uh, and also, you know, the bottom line is Muslims are going to follow what Islam says. Look at what happened in, in Afghanistan. You had one Afghan say that he was a Christian. He converted from Islam to Christianity. And even the Northern Alliance said that he should be put to death. Well, Ted, we're, we're reaching the end of the program. I, I want to thank you for joining me. Uh, let people know how they can read your works and get your book. Well, my website is tedshubat.com. That's T-E-D, Ted, and then Shubat, S-H-O-E-B-A-T, Shoe and Bat, tedshubat.com. And also the name of my book is called For God or for Tyranny. That's For God or for Tyranny, and they can get that at amazon.com. Ted, I want to thank you for joining me. I really enjoyed it. We should do it again. Anytime, sir. Just let me know. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Okay, Ted Shubat, check out his uh, blog site, check out his books. That pretty much wraps things up for today. I want to thank everyone for joining me. I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at noon p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. Check out my blog, Chuck Moore Speaks. You can order my book online, that being, um, what is my book called? Um, The Monkey Trial. (laughs) 
I've written so many of them at this point. The Monkey Trial, Devolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. You can order it online. It's $3.75. It's only available on the website, Chuck Moore Speaks. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening this afternoon. Have a good afternoon, everybody.